Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are joined by Kirsten Johnston, founder and CEO of JWDK, a brand design firm specializing in cultural and place identity in China. An expert in place branding, Kirsten has consulted for some of the most influential properties in mainland China. Based in Shanghai, Kirsten also serves as the vice chair of BritCham Shanghai. In our conversation with Kirsten, we get to learn more about her work in place branding for some of China's most notable landmarks. We discuss the importance of understanding human behavior and cultural identity in placemaking and place branding, and the need to adapt international models to fit local contexts. Kirsten also shares case studies of her work with Rockbund, a community space in Shanghai, as well as other projects across mainland China. We finish our conversation by exploring what makes a great design and some of the mistakes made that result in what she considers poorly designed places. Enjoy. There's a sort of sense of buzz about places that when you go there, because other people are there. And Shintandi, you mentioned, is an interesting case. There was all sorts of reasons why people felt Chinese people weren't going to like El Fresco dining. But something in their mind thought, no, if it works in Plaza in Rome, and if it works, you know, everywhere else in the world, why wouldn't people want to sit and enjoy something where you could see other people around you eating as well? And they really experimented. They're the first in Shanghai to really experiment with this concept um, in a in a kind of small plaza area. And it really took off. Talking to the developers that, that did, did the development at the time, it was really a case of tapping into the mindset of Chinese people meant they want to be outside to see others and they want to be seen. And there was this sort of two-way sort of value that you could get by sitting outside. And then what we noticed was the level of fashion and the, the way people dressed to go and sit in this environment was suddenly changing. You know, they weren't just turning up and ordering their lunch. They actually wanted to look apart. So really it's evolved and it's become almost like a solid placemaking model for Chinese developers to look at. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. Lovely to be chatting to you today. Where are we recording you from today? Where are your boots on the ground this morning? I am in Shanghai, China, a post-pandemic um, Shanghai, China. So yes, and I've been here for quite some time. Give us a quick introduction into yourself and the work that you do. Sure. Um, well, I'm um, a brand strategist, uh, creative director, small business owner um, of JWDK. So we're we're basically a brand design firm um, 
focusing mainly in mainland China. Um, but I'm also uh, the vice chair of the British Chamber of Commerce here in Shanghai. Um, I'm also uh, a global Scot, which is part of the Scottish network. And um, I do get involved in a, a bunch of other activities as well. So I'm pretty busy here. Um, a lot of the work we do here in China uh, for JWDK specializes in the property sector. Um, basically, we do what's called place branding, and that's where we would um, help property developers in China to reposition, um, rename, rebrand property assets and turning them pretty much from properties into places. So um, our job is to give that place a purpose and to um, give it some relevance to the market. So a lot, a lot of strategic work, but obviously a lot of design work as well. And that's a fabulous topic. I don't think that we have really gotten into it. Anything too close to that, especially on the, you know, the exterior, the area, the geography around these places as well. Um, this is going to be a really fun conversation. Pretty excited to do this today. But first, before we get to that, what is your story of how you ended up? Because this is always a very interesting story. We, we, we almost never, I, very few guests have just intentionally and always known this is where they were going to go, this is where they were going to be. What is your story? How did you end up in Asia? Well, you're right. It's a little bit of a complex one, so I'll try and keep it short. In fact, um, China's the sixth country I've lived in in my life. So um, I've, I've already traveled the world long before I even started as a designer. Um, you can probably hear my, by my accent. I'm sort of halfway between Britain and Australia. Um, but ultimately, um, I, uh, I studied graphic design, so I'm really a trained designer. And um, my first job was in Hong Kong, actually. Um, uh, I was a design slave, really, to the Hong Kong Trade Development Council, working very, very long hours um, doing exhibition design for Hong Kong. Um, and that was the beginning of a career path that then took me on a journey back to Australia in Melbourne and then eventually to London, um, where in the end I set up my own business. Um, and through the course of running my business, um, I, I grew that and, and worked in that business for about 10 years. And an opportunity came where I reconnected with one of my old colleagues, actually, from the Hong Kong days um, to kind of join our businesses together. And so um, really on a, on a sort of simple handshake and a verbal idea, um, I literally packed up everything, um, my family and the business and brought it to China. And that was in sort of tail end of 2014. Um, now we're in the sort of second life of the business, which is a sort of merged business, which has an office in Hong Kong. Um, it's a very small presence in London still, but ultimately our main headquarters is right here in Shanghai. And a lot of our focus is on mainland China now. So it's um, been a, a journey uh, of, I guess, a career path that's kind of brought me back here. Um, but it's been quite a great uh, exploration, a great journey culturally um, for not just me, but for my family as well. I've got a daughter and, and my husband. So, Design has a lot of different meanings, covers, and is a big part of a lot of different disciplines. So can you tell us a little bit about what is and how you decided on place branding? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, actually. I think if you look at the history of design as a topic, um, winding back, you know, 100 years to the Bauhaus times where these disciplines started to emerge in a sort of um, modernist post-industrial revolution state um, where things became... Um, objects became brands essentially over years and years of consumers wanting to buy products and, and fill their lives full of um, 
things that kind of reflected who they were. And, and I suppose design then taps into all sorts of areas from architecture to products to furniture. Um, but my specialism, my specialism was graphic design. I had a real interest in typography and communication. And it's the only sort of real discipline in design that has the sort of power to sort of um, move you emotionally through words, through images. And um, essentially uh, the, the niche within graphic design sort of started to develop away from being just an execution or almost like a print design process into something that became much more strategic. And that's, I think, when it's really switched into this idea of branding where you could actually create a whole new brand, a new brand narrative for something, be it a product or a service, um, and persuade audiences because, you know, as consumers now we're, we're very savvy and aware of brands all around us and, and products all around us. So the, the discipline of design and branding has become very specific and quite niche. And then you even break that down again into an area called place branding and that's where we're really considering property assets you know whether it's a, a museum or whether it's a heritage building or even a hospital um, a hotel these are these are places these are destinations and I think in a broader sense people would say a place might be a district or a town or you know a geographical area um, but if you analyze that word place um, you know your home could be your place so it's it's something psychological and um, so I think we we chose to specialize in this area in some ways more by accident because I um, when I did bring my business to China um, the, the company I merged with had already been doing a lot of property already and I, I basically thought this is interesting how do we take it up from being just a sort of branding a logo and sticking it on a building type approach and how do I move that into a more strategic and emotional space where these places become brands and I think um, I was also you know we, we see it a lot internationally this concept of place making it's very mature in western markets the US um, Australia, the UK, they're very advanced in talking about um, how uh, people utilise spaces, what place actually means to people. Therefore, um, some of that theory and thinking, um, I'm thinking, well, how do we bring this into China and make it relevant for, for Chinese culture, Chinese urban development and the way the government is actually building these cities. Um, so, yeah, that was a bit of a long answer to your question, but yes. No, and I, and I, and I might ask you to to even make it longer through this this next question. I think about iconic places. You think of, you know, Times Square, which is just just an area. It doesn't define a brand, it doesn't define a store, but it has definition. And the pier, the wharf, it matters in in real estate, you know, they'll put it in in the in the bio of where a house is located. It's only a short walk to the waterfront or to the fisheries district or to, you know, whatever it is, something. But that's all they need to say, because it holds meaning. It has psychological it has emotional attachment that has value, tangible monetary value where you can increase the price of a house just based on distance to uh, something like this. Okay. So how does all of that and how does place matter with respect to China? If you consider the rapid development of China from a physical sense, I mean, the cities um, have grown at a phenomenal rate. And, and I think where they were investing in real estate, they're pretty much investing in a very sort of functional way of town planning. I think the urban planning systems, and in a lot of cases, are sort of based on the US systems as well, um, where you build an entire ecosystem um, very quickly, and then you sort of populate it, which is obviously a different way than in the West, where slowly and organically, neighbourhoods would develop. Um, 
And in China, they did it quite rapidly because they they wanted to accelerate, I guess, the um, the consumption power. There was a lot of rise in wealth happening in China, as we know. Um, and I think if, if you lived here during that time, Todd, I mean, that period between 2000, 2010 was probably the fastest growth that we saw in China. Um, I guess they were responding to the needs of a, a swelling middle class of consumer who was ten- who was going to be sort of spending more money on a retail level. Their idea of quality was definitely being uplifted. So apartments became better. Um, town planning became better. Um, so I think the expediency of it meant they didn't do it slow enough to sort of consider very carefully, okay, do we need a plaza here? How are, do we need something that's human scale that people are going to enjoy? Is there going to be some public seating? You know, do we do a nice waterfront development? Um, and I think in the West it's sort of we see um, development sort of is, is in, in response to the needs of the people. But I found in China the development happened in response to the need of um fast investment growth. They needed the money to go through quickly. And property development was a very aggressive game at that time. Um, And we've all heard about, you know, the Chinese shopping malls being overdeveloped. Um, They pretty much stopped developing shopping malls, to be honest, Um, and the government's slowing all of that down because we've now got these kind of ghost malls um, in China where um, these are malls that were built with the intention of retail and they just never never got filled with shops and there's no no people going to them. They're quite sort of sad structures. Um, so I think they uh, they were doing it super fast. Therefore, some of the kind of the purpose and the meaning behind some of this development just didn't make sense. And certainly, even in the city of Shanghai, which I say is quite an advanced city for China, definitely you'd stumble upon kind of strange constructions that would happen where you'd sort of see a sort of set of stairs leading up to a solid brick wall and you're like, okay, what's happened there? And, you know, these kind of odd things in the physical space that clearly um, something happened here and then something happened there and then nobody sort of was talking to each other. Um, So it's almost... um, I think that the way China works, I feel, is they tend to sort of build a kind of 1.0 version of everything and then they test it and then they improve it. And and I feel if, we, if you apply that to a city or a place, I feel they're getting into the sort of 1.2 or the 1.3 version that they're definitely advancing and improving and regenerating rather than building um, greenfield sites. Like they're, not, they're no longer expanding Shanghai, basically. You can't really build out now in Shanghai. Um, now we've just got to go back and improve and improve and improve. Um, And I think this is the moment they're realising that um, it's not just about building a building. You've got to think about the use of the building and who is going to come and why they're going to come there. Um, And you see this all the time. You still see this in the West as well. You know, you might see a fantastically popular coffee shop or restaurant where there's like a queue at the door, you know, waiting to get in. And then the literally next door, which is sort of a very similar style of coffee shop or restaurant, is completely empty. And you've got to question, well, what what's so great about that one and not this one? And what's what is the emotional attachment that people have or what's their impression? What is it that's drawn them to that one? Um, and in China, um, it can be quite a fickle reason. It could be a trend that they've seen on WeChat um, that this particular tea shop, um, I mean, Hey Tea was one brand that actually did this and they launched this sort of luxury tea products. Um, and there's like a three-hour queue to get a cup of tea, basically. It seems sort of um, a bit crazy, but it was a sort of well-designed, luxury, tall cup of tea that looked cool to have it. And, and so sometimes trends, consumer trends, will drive people's needs to visit certain places. And I think what property developers are doing is 
trying to leverage the power of retail and power of trends in order to make places popular. Um, but often that's very short-lived, very short-lived. Shintendi kind of comes to mind as just being a place you go. That you, 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 you just, it's, a, it's almost on the, well, if you're a tourist in Shanghai, you have to go visit this area. You don't know what shops, you don't know if you're going there to eat or, or buy a jacket. But it's a place that you're supposed to go. I know that you you would have uh, you'd ask somebody like in, in Dalian, for an example, a Shanghai Guangchong. It was just an area. It's literally just a there's some park and some walking and things like this. But then massive developments around it because the place held an aura to which people were going to be attracted. I remember consulting with IT park developers, being uh, somebody in tech, wanting to build an incubator or an accelerator there because placing it near a university, having an accelerator, hoping that entrepreneurs were going to fill the hallways would then help them sell commercial real estate to companies like Oracle or or you know uh, Xiaomi or, or somebody else to come in who would be attracted to the either passersbys, uh, the, the the consumers or the students, the, 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 the types of people that they were looking to be near, they could go and be near those people by being at that place. And that place held that branding or drove that branding in order to be able to do that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, what you've described there is what we we would call sort of building a place culture. It's almost like there's a sort of sense of buzz about places that when you go there because other people are there. Um, and Shintendi, you mentioned, is an interesting case. Um, it was really, in fact, we, we launched the 20th anniversary for Shintendi literally um, two years ago. We did all their anniversary material. Um, but I do understand a lot of the planning processes that happened there. And I think there's a few interesting things that happened in that project that uh, Shui on land um, were quite certain about that everybody doubted. And one of them was um, should they knock down all the lane houses and build fresh new glass office blocks and um, shopping mall, modern shopping mall? Um, Or should they um, keep all of the restaurants in these lovely, clean indoor environments? And they said no to both. They said, no, we're going to keep a good portion of the lane houses and convert those into this kind of nice walkable village type space. That surprised the government a lot. They were really shocked that they didn't didn't want to, they wanted to keep these terrible old houses as far as they were concerned. But as we know, they're quite beautiful um, structures. And secondly, they were the first to explore the notion of El Fresco dining. And there was always a notion, Chinese people will never want to eat outside. It's too hot. It's not comfortable. They, they don't want to be in the, in the fresh air where something could blow on their plates. I mean, there was all sorts of reasons why people felt Chinese people weren't going to like El Fresco dining. But something in their mind thought, no, if it works in a Rome a plaza in Rome, and if it works you know, everywhere else in the world, why wouldn't people want to sit and enjoy something where you could see other people around you eating as well? And they really experimented. They're the first in Shanghai to really experiment with this concept um, in, a, in a kind of small plaza area, and it really took off. And and the, talking to the developers that, that did, did the development at the time, it was really a case of um, tapping into the mindset of Chinese people meant they want to be outside to see others and they want to be seen. And there was this sort of two-way sort of value that you could get by sitting outside. And then what we noticed was the level of fashion and the, the way people dressed to go and sit in this environment 
was suddenly changing. You know, they weren't just turning up and ordering their lunch. They actually wanted to look the part. And people, as we know in China, take a lot of photos. And um, so really it's evolved and it's become almost like a solid placemaking model um, for Chinese developers to look at. Um, but, of course, it's, that was 20 years ago. It's a long time in Chinese sort of history. So I think it's um, it's evolved even further now where even the example you mentioned um, in Dalian that the, the, there's elements that make places work in the physical sense. Um, and if you talk to urban planners and, and architects, you know, they, they touch on this as well. It's It's got to be human scale is number one. You know, you've got to feel a sense of intimacy in the environment around you. And I think... In a lot of Chinese developments, the scale is too big. You know, we, we see the size of the airports, the size of the shopping malls, the size of the kind of uh, the main squares, like the people square. Um, they're monolithic, monolithic structures that you would will often take you 10 or 15 minutes to walk to the other side of. It's not a small experience. So you feel intimidated by space, whereas Xintang Di just shrunk all that in. Um, and then where you also have walkability, so you're not near a roaring highway or you're not near traffic that sort of instinctively, as, as animals, we, we move away from danger, we turn our backs away from it. So we find that if you're sitting in a cafe on a street front and that traffic is fast, you don't feel comfortable. But if the traffic is super slow or it's just bicycles, you feel quite happy to sit there. And it's just sort of an unconscious feeling. So a lot of these are elements that are just human nature. Um, uh, and there's been some great studies done um, in the world on human behavior and how people move within public spaces. Um, there's um, Holly White. He's a quite a famous, um, I guess he's a... I think he's a psychiatrist or psychologist, but he was in, he was he did some fantastic films um, in New York around the Rockefeller Center, um, where he filmed. This is going right back to I think about the 1950s or so with with old style cameras on tripods around the city, and he filmed this plaza area for hours and hours, and then he observed it and he could see the way the patterns of behaviour of of Americans that would come out for their lunch and sit on an edge, and he'd identify in the urban structure where people feel safe sitting and where people and how people use objects, you know, if there's almost like a, a traffic um, sort of a ball that's been sort of put in there just to keep traffic away from the, from the edge, then how do, do people sit on that or do they put their foot on it? Or, you know, it was really fascinating studies that he did on how people actually manoeuvre within spaces and where is the safety zone, you know, how close do they get to others that they don't know. Um, and that's, I find, very fascinating. Um, and, in fact, when I came to China, um, one thing I did do is I studied an MBA in Suzhou, um, just a part-time MBA on weekends, and I dedicated all my dissertation on placemaking in China, and it was sort of comparing you know, how does how is placemaking um, done internationally? How do people consider um, the, the spatial environments in which they operate? You know, how do they share spaces together um, versus how does it happen here in China? And I think um, there are some differences, but ultimately um, the conclusion was as humans we have same instincts. And so I think a lot of those international models that have been developed over time are certainly valuable when we're looking at China because right. some of those basic principles will definitely work here. And, you know, the, the Shui on land were right. They were right about Xintendi, and that's been a huge success story for them. And it's really become probably the strongest landmark in Shanghai. So when you said that, you know, and I, and I think you said something along the lines of, well, if it works in Italy or in Rome or something, it, it must work here. That caught me for a second. I'm cautious 
about saying if it works somewhere else, it should work here. Because I think as you and I both know, most of the time, that is a lot of what outside into China gets wrong. Don't expect that you coming in and thinking that if it works somewhere else, it's going to work here is going to work. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I would say um, there's definitely instances where you can um, take a concept or an idea from the West and then you sort of have to adapt it or localize it for the Chinese people. Um, But I think when it comes to urban development, you know, in terms of physical spaces, I'd say... um, because you're really talking about the sort of physical height and size of a human being. There's not, you know, aside from being a Chinese person versus a Caucasian person or whatever, you're not talking about necessarily a big difference there. Um, so, of course, their natural instinct, normal human instinct, as in um, what seems dangerous to me or what seems safe and do I like to walk and do I like to be in the sunshine, that sort of thing. There are some cultural differences there, but ultimately as, as humans we, we have similar characteristics. However, I would say where it is quite different is when we're talking about um, bringing the purpose and the meaning and the branding and the marketing to these places, the story that you tell needs to be quite different because Chinese people are engaging or, or responding to your idea or this place according to their own self-identity. So people want to see environment or want to see themselves reflected in it somehow. So because, as I mentioned earlier, we've got this sort of rising middle class and it's swelling to a great level. Um, these are people that potentially have travelled internationally already. You know, they visited the plazas in Rome. So these are people that have, I guess, sort of an international expectation. And whilst they want to have their own city quite unique, they don't necessarily want it to to look like somewhere else, um, they do appreciate some of the ideas that they see overseas starting to land in their city. And But it's always going to be a hybrid mix of things. Um, a key project we, we just launched, um, Tale of 21, um, was right along the Bund area of Shanghai is a place called Rock Bund. And it's just where Suzhou Creek joins the main Huangpu River. And uh, this is a block of land. It's one of the only privately owned pieces of land left in Shanghai, um, owned by the O family. And it's a set of 11 heritage buildings, Art Deco style, um, what was the former British concession area of, of Shanghai. Um, and they built in some modern buildings as well. But this block is quite nice in the sense that you've got one side of it facing a street that's fully pedestrianised and you've got these little inner walkways and you've got a couple of mini little plazas inside. But the only challenge that this place had was it's far away from any metro station. It's about a 15-minute walk to the nearest metro station and it's more as we know, along the Bund area in Shanghai is more of a kind of front, heritage front, where tourists come and take pictures. It's also, you know, near the Peninsula Hotel. There's a lot of hotels and former bank buildings converted into um, more tourist-focused businesses, um, you know, whether you're doing a boat cruise or whatever. So I think what Rock Bund were feeling at the time was a lot of people come here dressed in their wedding clothes to have all of their wedding photos taken, but they weren't engaging with the place. They weren't going into the shops or they weren't doing too much. And I think as the owners of the property could see, it's such a beautiful place. Could we, could we not do more with this? How do we um, 
kind of reshape it, rebrand it and give it a whole new meaning to the modern Shanghainese person who appreciates their own history. I think Shanghainese people are very aware of their international history. Um, and I think when people visit Shanghai, even domestic tourists, they come, they love going to these areas to take pictures because they simply don't see it in their own cities. And I think when um, rock band sort of wanted to advance their their brand, they, they came to us and we did quite a lot of deep research actually around how people are going to um, use this space in terms of the physical space. So we did, we walked around the site and this is a site that was still under restoration by uh, David Chipperfield Architects and they'd been working on this project for about 16 years, so quite a long time. Um, and we then did a whole lot of visioning workshops. So one of the, the main pieces of research we did was to pull in all the existing tenants. At the time they had Christie's Auction House there was a couple of small boutiques. Um, there were some future tenants that they wanted to bring in, um, like a music studio um, business. There was um, Lunia Bakery, which is a whole new bakery chain that's become very popular. There was a, a mix of different businesses. So we brought those business owners into a room and we talked about how do we build a rock band community amongst all of us who are coexisting here within this space? And that's definitely not what, property developers normally do. Normally they would have a leasing team that would approach different tenants to come in and take literally a shop and then they'd populate the shops and then they would expect everything to sort of run by itself. Um, but because time's moved on and retail has to work a whole lot harder to get people to come to their physical stores now because of e-commerce, um, everyone's trying hard to tell a different story. So Rockband as a place decided to... Um, invest in this idea that it's not just a place, it's a community and how do we evolve and what's at the DNA of our brand? You know, who are we as a place? And that's exactly what we do. So we, we facilitated it all. What our research sort of resulted in was that the local young retail, you know, the young consumer that they wanted to attract would be someone who was internationally aware, someone who was probably what they call the Gen Z um Generation, so um, people, I think, born post ninety five. Um, they want um, they want to retain their kind of art narrative that they had because they always had the Rockbund Art Museum within the Rockbund space, um, and they also wanted to speak something of their architectural heritage. So, so us as brand designers were saying, okay, all of these elements are, are really lovely. In fact, the heritage architecture is beautiful, but it's not necessarily the reason why people are going to come to the place. So we positioned them with a sort of more unique DNA. We said, okay, um, rather than just saying you're about art, why don't we push the boundaries of art to the, the fringe? And we'll say, look, why don't you own this little space that's called fringe art? And of course, when we look internationally, we, we look at fringe festivals and we know what fringe is about. It is about pushing boundaries. It's about incubating new emerging talents, whether they're singers or actors or dancers. Um, it's about finding um, uniqueness within um, art space that hasn't gone mainstream. And we said, you're in a perfect position to do that because already you've got a contemporary art gallery. Already that gallery was um, exhibiting work that I would say was definitely pushing the boundaries of, of certainly what you would normally see in China anyway. And, and then we thought, okay, if we can position this around your own, make your own type of fringe, we can give this tool to all of these tenants to say, okay, you're a bakery brand. What can you do? 
to to give yourself a fringe version of what you do? What's something alternative that you can do that pushes it and surprises people? So, of course, the bakery, um, which now has numerous stores all over Shanghai, when they opened in, in Rockbund, they opened the uh, Lunia's Lab or the Lunia's Atelier. So they've actually got a little cooking workshop in there. They've put in special different menu. Um, so they've started to buy into this whole cultural idea of fringe, um, and all of the tenants are doing the same. So you're getting this kind of continuous sense that everything here is just a little bit different. It's a bit on the edge. Um, and we quite like that notion because the physicality of the space, it's it's sort of on the edge of the bund and it's sort of away from the centre of town. So we like this idea that this is a little fringe space that they owned. So I think um, this is the sort of thing where uh, we also have to understand the Chinese consumer, the cultural elements of it. Um, and when we did the place visioning workshop, we learned a lot actually about the habits of Chinese consumers. And to give you an example, one of the tenants is um, a boutique that does handmade cheap power dresses. So that's the traditional Shanghainese Chinese dresses. And if you just go back even one generation, you know, to the mothers or the grandmothers, um, a chi power was for life. It was handmade. It was beautiful. And then what the ladies would do is if over the years, you know, they were a little bit broader around the waist, then the chi power would just get adjusted and it would be a process of adjustment and adjustment. And this dress would be passed down to in the family. So... Um, Today's consumer, though, the same people that make these dresses, they say when the young people come in, they're not just going to buy one dress. They might buy three or four. They will swap and change them. They'll put, they'll wear it with trainers and stick on a Gucci handbag and mix and match. They're much more creative with how they use some of these cultural elements of Chinese fashion. So where a cheap power was almost like a statement and a cultural statement, now it's become this kind of exciting, playful way of showing that I am a Chinese person and I can be a bit more um, exciting with how I'm going to construct my fashion and express myself in a different way. So you're seeing this confidence come through in the young generation because they're a bit more carefree, you know, they don't have the pressures, they're not um, struggling, you know, the the wealth, um, the social mobility in China has just been so fast that every generation is so much wealthier than the last, um, that they are much freer with how they spend their money. And it's been interesting knowing that in terms of the, the generation gaps and their cultural expectations. Um, and I think with Rockbun, they're very sensitive. They don't want to exclude some of the older audiences because these are people that might enjoy... Um, you know, some Chinese opera singing in a plaza, for example, maybe the young people aren't interested, but if they can sort of blend it together a little bit, then somehow the young generations do appreciate it and they like to be part of this traditional Chinese culture, but they also love this kind of modern trend stuff where it's all a bit fun and playful. So this is what Rock Band was about for us, and it kind of educated us a lot about Shanghainese people. Um, and then the work that we do, we obviously do work in other cities in China. So when we did a project in Nanjing, we spent a long time talking to local Nanjing people, and they're so different <laughs> from Shanghainese people. And literally on a high-speed rail, it's a one-and-a-half hours you're in Nanjing. Totally different, totally different dialect, totally different food. I mean, it's amazing. It really is like entering another country. So um, we then dive into that culture and say, okay, what is it that Nanjing people find interesting? And what is it, you know, how much of their history, because they've had such a peppered history and I think not, not so a great history, but they've certainly um, become resilient through that. And the history still means a lot to people. 
So we we brought in some historic elements into a brand that we worked for in Nanjing as well. That kind of just people it triggers people's minds. It says this is for us, almost created by us, um, but it's still cool and it looks a little bit international. And these are all of the requirements. It's got to look a bit international. <laughs> I don't know what that means still, but it's sort of um, there's this desire to be recognised, desire to be recognised globally. And uh, I think that's that's sort of often where we, as an international agency with local designers, we have that lovely mix of being able to. Okay, I get what you're saying by international quality, but how do we make it super super local, and how do we extract that and and present it in a lovely way? I know what you mean about wanting to look into international and in the ways that they do that. It, it 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 still holds a prestige. I remember 20 years ago. In China, one would have thought that there would have been a massive market for English copywriting because of how many the grammatical and spelling mistakes that you would see on all the billboards and signs and whatnot. But when you dug in, and I did for a very cup of coffee amount of time, they they said, you know what, we don't, we're not even trying to get it right. It's just that if we have la- if we have English out there, it makes us look more international. It's already done its job. We don't have to get it right, or it ha- doesn't have to be grammatically correct because most people wouldn't notice anyway. So uh, it, it was I don't know. I it was really eye opening to me to hear that explanation of why they used it and why they didn't care if it was right because it was achieving its purpose. That's that. But I love all that story. I love the Rock the Band story, uh, Rock the Bund story, because those are the anecdotal things that we're always looking for on this podcast that I think everybody gleans just so much information and education from. So Kirsten, thank you for that. I want to ask you another question. How did you get the client of Rock the Bun. How did you get that client in Nanjing? How are you doing business development? And of course, I'm not asking you to divulge your trade secrets or your your clientele list or any of that. But how does one, especially in place branding, do business development and gain clients in China? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, as a design business, which is essentially a service consultancy, we are always on the sort of treadmill of looking for pipeline projects because we tend to work on a project-by-project basis. We don't have these long retainers. So there's always a risk that, you know, if the project stops, we we, we don't survive. What we do, um, because we've specialised in this kind of vertical space, so I would say we are a deep expert firm. We're not a general... Um, generalist design company that will tap into many, many different industries and do many things. So we don't do packaging. We don't, you know, we don't brand bake bean tins. We don't do, there's a whole uh, layer of consumer branding that we just don't enter. Um, and to be honest, that that's already covered by a lot of firms. Um, so what we've found ourselves in this kind of vertical space of knowing who our clients are, um, really we are looking at, international developers, and that's typically Hong Kong developers. So we work with Hong Kong land, we work with Shuayan land, we work with Kerry Properties, and these are all the big Hong Kong players that have assets in China. Um, Then we, a tier down from that, we work with um, independent developers. And these are possibly family businesses who own physical assets, they own real estate, but they're not necessarily professional developers. So they might be like, what do I do with this old factory? How do I change this? Um, And obviously it's a different experience. So when, when we're doing our sort of business development, we're spending a lot of time talking to people within real estate and we often find those people switch from job to job and stay within the property industries. Not many of them sort of step away from the industry completely. So um, 
in any design business, it's all about personal relationships you have with people and word of mouth marketing. I think that's most powerful for us. And I'd say 90% of our business is um, sort of inbound inquiries of someone who's referred us. You know, that's definitely going to be um, the most effective way of, of getting a, an opportunity to pitch for something or, or sometimes just to be commissioned. But um, we also do some hunting. We do use tools to go out and look for either new geography. So we say, okay, we haven't really done a, a project in Changsha. What can we do? You know, let's, let's have a look at the landscape there. What's what's happening on the development side? And we do a little bit of online research to see. And there are websites you can go to where you you can see sort of public tenders for land. Okay, who bought the land? Who is that developer? Do you know? You can you can sort of know the life cycle of property. Um, obviously, that's quite time consuming and arduous, and and often uh, you you'll be lucky to get sort of one percent of your projects coming out of that. Um, so really marketing and um, word of mouth. And, of course, we attend um, quite a few conferences and events that are in this space. So um, Urban Land Institute, for example, they do quite a lot of um, events where architects are involved, where um, urban planners are involved. And we find just being part of that narrative means we're always present. Um, and then people speak to us, oh, yeah, I've heard of you, JWDK, Um we don't have, honestly, a lot of competition in this space. I think in 2015, we're probably the only ones really specialising in this. By now, we've got a few competitors, mainly from Hong Kong, um, but we kind of know each other. It's one of these sort of small competitor pools where you're sort of friends and foes at the same time um, sharing notes. And we figured, well, China's a very big place. There's probably enough work for everybody <laughs> to share it around. Um, but I think what's um, we get most of our inspiration and influence actually from abroad where we can see how they've advanced their cities and the trajectory of development and change isn't dissimilar to be honest when I'm looking at this, um, the way the, the cities are developing so we can certainly learn a lot from the failings of the US you know what the US are talking about now is is trying to get rid of the cars you know they, 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 they built the cities yeah. for cars yeah. and now they don't want the cars it's like no, no no let's get the bicycles and they're sort of retracting all of this but I think it makes sense right because people just realize they're spending all day driving in a car and they're sitting in a traffic jam and it's not healthy people are just getting overweight sitting in cars you know so I think just the act of walking almost going back to the traditional models you know and I know in Britain we sort of we never quite developed the cities in that way. We we sort of had always had small streets because they were designed for horse and cart. They were never designed for cars and um, and then a lot more walkable zones. So if you visit London, you're likely to be on foot for quite a lot of your journey. Um, that's that's healthy, and uh, I think people are seeing that now. Um, so interesting that China sort of when they went through their rapid development stage, they modelled a lot of the the street planning. And the block systems um, on the US, but I think they're sort of looking at it going, hang on a minute, that might not have been a good idea. Particularly got those big um, elevated highways that run through the city as well, which, to be honest, is the um, main artery of um, of car flow, you know, getting through the city. Without those, it'd be a total traffic jam. But, um, but in terms of w- nice walkable spaces, it's few and far between. It's still very car heavy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was going to ask you about some of the design influences, and I think we got there. I I was going to ask you some of the considerations that you look at when you're building a strategy, and I think we did some of that. So I want to skip down and maybe ask you to drill into the differences in the, the requests, the projects, the management, the ideology that they maybe enter into a business relationship with you that they have coming in between Chinese companies in China and international companies 
in China. Can you just talk to me about the differences in whatever impactful sense makes sense for you to talk about? Well, it's interesting. We we did a project in Shanghai in 2017 called Columbia Circle. We actually did, it was the former um, American Country Club in Shanghai um, because it was the countryside at that time, 1924, I think it was. Um, that's all been redeveloped by uh, a big Chinese developer called Van Qi. Um, and they were traditionally known for doing residential developments. And this was the first time they were tackling a heritage regeneration project that was essentially going to be public space as well as offices, you know, mixed-use development. Um, so working with them as a Chinese entity compared to, say, working with one of the Hong Kong developers, which has a much more sort of international approach to doing business, um, is like chalk and cheese. I think we still, in some ways, we don't struggle so much with Chinese developers or the state-owned developers, but we know we're entering into... Um, a different machine. It's a, it's a system that, like a lot of these huge conglomerates, these Chinese conglomerates, they're very tall, structured companies. You've got many, many, many layers of management. And we find their mindset is very short-term, very short-term mindset. They know that this property asset, um, which does get developed very rapidly in China compared to, say, the West, a, a development might be from beginning to end, done within two to three-year window in China, whereas it might be a 10-year window in the UK. Um, so with this rapid development of, of a place, um, we find that people don't think too far in advance. They're not like saying, okay, well, what are we creating in this city that's going to be great in 10 years' time or 20 years' time? And how is the next generation going to enjoy this? And all they're thinking about is what do I have to do next week to get my KPIs ticked and, and to keep the boss happy? You know, that's the sort of client you're facing where you can have a strategic question, but it sort of annoys them because don't ask me something strategic, just ask me something executional that I'm going to get done. And we had to navigate this quite carefully because they hire us because we are strategic, but they're not prepared to sort of dive in on the strategy part. They just want to get it done. You know, they're very pragmatic people um, in a Chinese organization like that, and they are following a system. This is what we do. This is how we do it, and this is where it's done. When we work with um, the more international firms, I think they approach the project in a different way. Their mindset is different. Um, they're already thinking a bit more longer term, so they're thinking, okay, well, in the examples um, of Rockbund, I mean, if they already engaged David Chipperfield for 16 years to, to chip away and make the, make the architecture beautiful, you can see already they're not in a hurry to, to get this place launched. They want to do it properly. They want the quality to be right, and they still want it to um, – to sort of gather, to grow in character as time goes on. And then when they engaged us, they, they knew that there was a turning point where they just felt they had to start telling a story about this place. What's our story? How are we going to explain it? Um, and they didn't rush that process either. Um, we worked with them for nearly a year. We launched it, yeah, tail end of 21 when um, we actually did a Christmas theme um, for the building. And... Um, even since it launched because of the pandemic where there's a lot of restricted access, you couldn't just, um, you know, occasional lockdowns and you, you, whatever, um, meant they couldn't really promote it as a place when people couldn't leave their apartments. So um, they just slowly built up a whole bunch of other areas um, in relation to their marketing. They've put on what they could. They started to refresh some of their tenant mix. Um, they started to talk about this community. Then now, I mean, now we're pretty much um, sort of post zero COVID policy, um, 
they're in a much stronger position now in terms of engaging with people and actually they're doing much bigger events. They just did a labelhood fashion event. Um, they're also continuously um, engaging people on a much smaller granular level. So it's almost like every weekend there's something going on at Rockbun now. Um, so that's a different mindset. It's a different mindset. It's about they get the social needs of people and they get the sort of culture they're trying to build, whereas I think when we work with uh, the Chinese firms, you know, when you start having conversations about, okay, what kind of culture do you want here, they find that a very abstract question and they're still in a slightly older mentality of, it's just a building, right? Is it, you know, just, just build it and people will come. And it's like, no, 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 we've got to sort of start thinking a bit more advanced. So we're always pushing our clients, particularly the Chinese firms, to just think a bit differently. And, and slowly we're seeing people within those firms are understanding and are starting to see what we're talking about because we're putting examples in front of them and they can appreciate it more because I think we're getting slightly younger people becoming more senior within firms and that's where the attitudes start to change within the Chinese companies as well. I want to go into a bit of a speed round with you. I've got four questions for you. First one, chalk and cheese. Is that British or Australian? British. Bye, Jill. <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. Only the good quality by Joe. It's a bit like whiskey. Okay. If you're not drinking the best grade, you're not getting the good stuff. <laughs> Is Maltai still one of the best or no um, i've been introduced to more boutique brands of by i was gonna say it's probably more. the poor man's best it's a poor man's still best. 600 renminbi a bottle probably um <laughs> bullet point for me like three things top of your head real quick what makes a greatly designed place walkability human scale so intimacy to the space mm. And I would say greenery and habitat. So we always want to be connected to nature. So I'd say those are sort of critical elements in terms of a space that we can all enjoy. As long as you can walk on it or sit on it. Um, yeah, which and not be heavy pollution around you. <laughs> 20 years ago, it was somewhat prohibitive to, you'd see all these amazing, but you were, the, the signs were everywhere. Please do not go on it. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, same thing. Few bullet points, poorly designed place. What do you think is mistakes you see out there um, that you would immediately want to fix? Well, I think you just mentioned it, access. I think there's still a problem with access. Um, they're getting much more safe pet-friendly, for example, in China, um, where you can take dogs a little bit more places, but still kind of frustrating. You can't just walk your dog in a park sometimes. So I think access is a problem, um, and they need to address that. Um, poorly designed, I think uh, just monolithic, enormous places, which makes you feel like you've landed on the moon. Ones in poor locations or facing the wrong way. You know, there's often where they don't think beyond the red line of the property and not thinking about where what's beyond that property and, and engaging with the whole neighborhood. I think that I see that quite a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's go upper echelon. Let's go into the stratosphere. I want to talk to you or ask you I, quite, quite simply, what kind of place design is in vogue in China right now? Well, I think if we think in terms of retail, I would say there's definitely some places that have caught the attention of young people. One of them is called TX Huaihai, which is a development they did on Huaihai Road, uh, one of the main strips in, in Shanghai. Um, they totally sort of experimented with the concept of retail. So it's almost like you walk into the shopping mall and you're kind of already walking through a lot of the brands. So it's all very open plan. They bring in a lot of uh, hyper experiential um, ideas into the space. It's pretty noisy. I mean, every brand has made an effort to do something a bit wild. The Nike store there is uh, huge, awesome, and very brightly lit. I mean, it's quite an intense experience going to that place, but it's very much geared at the young. Um, yeah, I think um, 
places are definitely getting more experiential. And I think this is the attempt um, for people to respond to the fact that why would I need to go to a shopping mall if I can just buy everything online? In fact, you can't think of one thing that you need to go to the shopping mall to buy, okay? So these what were traditional malls are remodeling themselves as experiential places. So you go there for social and entertainment. There's a whole bunch of things that you should be able to do here that engages you beyond and inspire you. Um, so the investment in experiential design, uh, even places like Sintendi, um, they they invest a lot in this. And, and that's sort of the trend um, going forward where it's also highly interactive and even brands that will do sort of pop-up spaces where you can get involved, you know, you can run on a treadmill and all the balls start pinging up around you and people just like to be photographed in those and being it's sort of, again, create places that reflects the lifestyle of the people and they'll probably come, enjoy it, take their pictures um, and leave. But I think still it's challenging. People still not necessarily making money out of it. <laughs> you know, retail is challenging because um, whilst people enjoy these places, they don't necessarily spend the money. Um, I think the other interesting sort of trend or say non-trend is whilst we were through the gone through the pandemic, I think what we saw in the West was workspace habits changed a bit in the West where people just adopted a work from home idea and it seems to become like a norm. Um, in London, for example, a lot of my friends uh, work from home Monday and Friday and they're only at the offices uh, in the middle of the week, whereas it hasn't really gained traction here at all, the work from home. In fact, everyone's gone straight back to the offices and I think it's um, in my mind, down to transport systems. It's like everywhere in Asia has efficient transport systems. You can get to work quite comfortably within 20 minutes compared to London. Um, it can take you off in a long time to get to work, and it's, it's frustrating when things aren't consistently um, available. So I think uh, apartment sizes here are also quite small. Um, so you find people don't actually want to be working from home. They want to be going to another place. And also that journey of seeing other things is actually part of the whole experience of, you know, you enjoying your your journey, you know, back and forth. So it's interesting how some things haven't worked in China. I, or I just certainly people are talking about it, but I certainly haven't seen or heard many companies engaging in solid work from home policies now. I think they're all just sort of waiting. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it is a culture. There are cultural differences here that um, I think we can't assume, but because it's happening overseas, it's going to happen here. But there's definitely things that people pick up from overseas and they adapt it slightly um, to their own. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of that. And really, thank you very much, Kirsten, for being on the show. Kirsten Johnson, founder and CEO of JWDK. She is an expert in place branding and cultural identity in China. Thank you very, very much for being on the show today. Okay, no, thank you very much, Todd. It's been lovely chatting to you. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant. For all of those of you watching on YouTube, please don't forget that we have the audio only podcast. If you want to do dishes or mow the lawn while you're listening to us, please remember to go there. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, everywhere that you listen and find podcasts, you can go there. For those of you audio only, if you want to see Kirsten and I live on in video, on camera, please don't forget to go to the WPIC YouTube channel and you can find the entire recording on video over there. But for all of us at The Negotiation and WPIC, thank you very much for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. 
My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.